Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ah, spring. A new season has begun. And as the days grow longer like so many math class boners, the dreams, they grow wetter. For April showers bring Austin powers. Do I make you horny, baby? Season 3 will. Hello and welcome to The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. My guest this week is Nick Kroll. And you just heard the opening moments of Big Mouth Season 3, which just started streaming on Netflix earlier this month. I talked to Nick the Monday morning after that show went up, and he broke down some of the feedback he was already starting to receive from fans who binged the whole thing over the weekend. Since the movie Joker had come out that same weekend, I was curious to know what Nick thought about director Todd Phillips saying that he basically stopped making comedies because, quote, woke culture was making it too hard to be funny. To me, Big Mouth is the perfect example of why that is total nonsense, and I think Nick's response really helped explain why that's the case. Do you have ideas for comedians who you want to hear on the show? Please let us know by going on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and review and telling us who you want to hear. But now, let's hear my conversation with Nick Kroll. Just Take your time. Not catching up, just trying not to fall behind. Does that make exactly. sense? All right. I understand. How's this? Is this okay? Do I need headphones? If you would like them, they're right there for I you. I don't really... I don't really need them. Do you like hearing your own voice? I I, I hear my voice more, plenty. More than you need to? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just, before we even start, I'm just looking where my my next thing is and what my timing is. Oh, yeah. Is. Let me know. What How you're... long do you normally go we for? We usually go an hour. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I don't think I can go much past that because I have to be in, in Hollywood at, All right. for a I'll pitch be, I'd like to be walk. mindful of the time. Thanks. But an hour, I think, is fine. Yeah. So what what's your next thing? You have a you have a pitch? Uh I have a pitch that I'm a, a part of. Yeah. Just a just a, a small part of. <laughs> cool. Um well thanks for coming in and doing this. Yeah, man. Um it's an exciting uh, Monday morning after Big Mouth dropped on Netflix. <clears throat> yes. Uh so yeah, do you uh do you get a lot of feedback? Do you pay attention to it? Uh do you do you take it all in? I do. <laughs> I mean it's such a it's such a weird thing because it, it's, it's so different than when I started all of this. Like, if someone said, like, even five years ago, or let's say 10 years ago, mm-hmm. that I would work on a show for over a year, it would come out over one weekend, the entire show would come out. Yep. And then anyone who wanted to be in touch with you about the show, positively and negatively, could contact you in any number of um, platforms. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty surreal thing. So I'm both, uh, I both engage it and try to keep some distance from it because Mm -hmm. it's just, no matter how positively everything comes in, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's weird. And it's, I think it's hard for the brain to kind of absorb, you know, because you've sat with this thing, this show that like, you know, basically me and my my creative partners and writers and cast have been working on in different stages and forms for well, like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just gets put out into the world for, you know, hopefully millions of people to, to view. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. I think people are, are really excited about the show, the season three coming out. And then most people probably do finish it in the in the one weekend or a lot of people do i think yeah do you ever wish that it came out week to week and that you could kind of like put some space and people could have a conversation about each episode more or i mean if i had my druthers what i would tell people and I, people have asked me and i like 
I mean, there's something there is something deeply gratifying about watching more than one episode at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I kind of wish people watched it like there's 10 episodes in a season, like three sittings over a couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. I think would be nice, you know. One episode here, two episodes there, three up. Ep- you know, I just think that like, I think when you binge all of it in a, and I'll take it however you know, it's yeah. like it, however people want to watch it. I'm mm-hmm. grateful for people decide they want to watch the entire season. Um, but I think that like stuff sticks with you a little more when you absorb it over a period of time versus like one, you know, bingey kind of uh, experience. Um, at least that's how I've. Mm-hmm. That's how I seem to intake media and have it really resonate and sit with me. Sometimes, I mean, we had people this, I had a bunch of people this weekend being like, I binged it and then I re-binged it again. And I'm like, that's <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot. But it is so dense with jokes that you can, I think it does, it rewards repeat viewing too. I think so. Animation really lends itself to rewatching because there are so many different jokes happening on so many different layers, both visually and, and joke-wise and storytelling and that uh, that I do think you can rewatch it and find new stuff every time. Yeah, well, um, I love the new season so much. I love the show. Um, I got to I got it a little early, so I did watch it probably over a couple weeks. Oh, cool. Um, and just and think it's great. But I was I was looking back because I interviewed you for the Daily Beast before the first season came out. Right. And I talked to you a little bit about um, the audience for it and whether you thought that the kids, the age of the characters, would watch it. Ah. Uh. What did and, I say? And you kind of said like, well, I'm not going to tell them to watch it, but you kind of hinted like maybe they would enjoy it or yeah. maybe they would get something out of it. And there, and since then, there's been kind of all this at least anecdotal evidence that I've heard from friends and yeah. people that, that kids are watching it. And these, you know, this, so it's the show's about seventh graders and that's kind of, and that's the age group that we're talking about and, yeah. that, they, and that they do let, love it and get a lot out of it and learn from it. So, I mean, what, what's your, what is your thought on that now? I mean, do you, do you, do you hear that? Uh, I do. I hear it a lot. I mean, I have nieces and nephews and I have like some of them are right in that sweet spot of like seventh, eighth, ninth grade and obviously high school. Like I assumed it's so funny that I because I I mean, I'm like, oh, you probably interviewed while I was like pacing around my kitchen. (laughs) Were we in the phone? It was on the phone. Yeah, yeah. it was on the phone. So my gut is I was like walking around my kitchen like like jacked up on iced mm-hmm. coffee like doing five interviews being like i yeah. hope people watch the show Probably like the week before the first season came out yeah, yeah exactly so um and and i we have been more than pleasantly surprised about how how many kids have watched it and and even more so that parents are okay with it because mm-hmm. it's obviously the show is very dirty but like I think more and more people are realizing that, like, with the messaging of what we're saying is, is I think pretty trying to be pretty responsible. Where, where you know, you know, but again, also like we're we are just an entertainment show. But um, having kids watch the show, I've, I mean, I like nieces and nephews like texting me, DMing me, being like, my friends all watch the show. We're so excited. Everyone loves it. Like, and that's awesome because mm-hmm. it is. Look, it's a show that we all made, and we're all very much adults, but we made it, uh, and it's about this very lonely time in life and and tricky time, and so the idea that kids would watch it and hopefully feel a little less alone inside of it and, and maybe learn a thing or two and, and just and, and have a laugh at it and be like, oh, I can laugh at this stuff mm-hmm. um, is very gratifying. Yeah, so the, the season three starts in the spring of seventh grade for yeah. these characters, and I know you got... Uh, picked up for uh, six seasons, uh, yeah. three more seasons, um, which is great. Congrats on that. Thank you. Um, do you have you thought about how these characters will age? Because there's this thing in animation where The Simpsons and yeah. you know Family Guy, these kids stay the same age, yeah. but they but these kids, the, the nature of your show seems like they they do need to to grow a little bit. So have you how have you thought about that? You know, it it's a show about kids going through puberty and. Well, it, so it started being like one of the reasons we wanted to do the show was because most coming of age shows the kids hit puberty and age out mm-hmm. quickly. So like I grew up with the Wonder Years and like Fred Savage hits puberty and mm-hmm. like you're like, well, I can't really tell these like coming of age <laughs> stories anymore because yeah. Fred is now an adult. Um, so we were like, great, we can do animation. We can keep the kids young. Mm-hmm. But then as we're making it, it's the show is about kids changing and to not have them change and evolve uh, and literally grow and emotionally grow 
uh, would feel like it's a disservice to um, to the, the the subject matter. So we're we're aging them very slowly, mm-hmm. um, and we're we're pushing them through. Like season three takes place in the spring, you know. Uh, the Valentine's Day special, which is technically the beginning of season three, is in February. And so mm. we're slowly moving them forward. Um, so we have a, you know, a bit of a map um, as to where and how we think the kids grow and t- to what levels. And But also, you know, we have a very clear idea of what we want to do in general, but we also do let the show and the characters and the stories like tell us what what they want to be and and try to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the episodes that I really enjoyed in the new season is uh, the one where where Nick gets addicted to his cell phone, mm. uh, Celsi, which is yeah. uh, uh, voiced by Chelsea Peretti. Right? Yes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how, why you wanted to make that part of it? Cause that is such a big issue now is like cell phone addiction and with adults as well as yeah. with kids. <laughs> well, it was, it, it started with season three, I think for us is, is a little more of an examination of what it's like to be a kid today. The mm-hmm. first couple seasons were really more, a bit of a nostalgic look back at Andrew and me and, and all of our friends and with the experiences we had growing up and that stuff is still there, but we now... I think by season three, we're like, all right, let's start to get into what it's like now for kids. Um, And, you know, the show is always taking place in the present tense, but it was minimal where we saw screens and things like that here and there. Um, And the cell phone addiction stuff is obviously such a big deal for kids right now. Every kid I know has a phone. Every parent I know is trying to navigate and figure out how to deal with it because it's like – it's a it's a drug that's in your pocket. And I can speak from my experience of feeling very addicted and connected to my phone. I mean, it's like sitting here on the table as yeah. we do this interview and I'm like, it the <laughs> the energy off of it and the, like it's to me it's like vibrating energy constantly. Yeah. And I find it I find myself really obsessed and addicted to it. And so it felt like we can talk about this because kids are really going through it. But also it's something that I can really connect with personally of mm-hmm. feeling like I this weird emotional relationship. And then, you know, we were like, who could voice that? And and my friend Chelsea Peretti, who's on the show already as as Missy's mother and plays has played a number of other characters on the show. But uh, as someone who I think has such a funny grasp over phones and social media and you know Chelsea's just got such a clear distinctive voice literally and uh, metaphorically in mm-hmm. the space that it felt like she would be a great person to to voice the phone. Yeah, she's great in in the role. Um the other one that I, the other episode that I wanted to talk to you about is the um disclosure the musical. It's finally happening. We've waited so long. All right, people, let's get started. Who's up first, please? I'm Nick Birch, and I'm reading for the Michael Douglas role. I'm a family man, not a sexual harasser. My boss tried to do me, now my life's a disaster. I only let her blow me, I did nothing wrong. Wow, very loud, thank you. Which I actually just listened to you on How Did This Get Made, yeah. talking about the original Disclosure movie with uh, Demi Moore and, and Michael Douglas, mm-hmm. um, which was really funny. Did you... Was that a movie that you uh, that that you thought about or watched at a, at a young age that you that you connected to in some way? I mean, it's part of that. There's a period of movies in the '90s, late '80s and '90s, where Michael Douglas was like what we like to say was too sexy for his own good, mm-hmm. um, and it, you know there was Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, and then Disclosure was sort of the third in those movies. And to me, Moore had her run of like. Uh, that and um, uh, uh, what was the Robert Redford Woody Harrelson movie? Um, mm, I don't know. Uh, where it's like Robert Redford offers a million dollars to Woody Harrelson. Oh, uh, indecent proposal. Indecent proposal. Yeah. It was all in these like sexy sexual politics movies in the nineties, um, and 
so it, it came together a few ways. One, we knew we wanted to do a musical episode, like that the kids put on a musical. Mm-hmm. So we we knew we wanted to do that. We knew that all of this season was the first season that we wrote after Me Too had really yeah. taken hold and built momentum. And so we were like, we want to talk about sexual harassment. Um, so we thought maybe, oh, a musical sexual harassment. And then I sort of offhandedly said like, you know, the bad example would be like, they do a musical of the movie Disclosure. <laughs> And then we were like, everyone sort of laughed, but then we were like, well, now let's try to figure out what the actual movie is. And we sort of we went back to like look at other movies that were sort of are now problematic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, maybe it's like Revenge of the Nerds or mm-hmm. a movie like that that we all loved growing up. But then you now go back and watch and you're like 16 Candles. Yeah, yeah. These movies that you're now like, oh, these are tricky, but... They just weren't quite as funny or didn't quite make sense. It's It's almost those are like two on the nose. Yeah. This is a little more left field. (laughs) Yeah. And Disclosure really speaks to 25 years later a lot of what there is a lot of talk of, which is the paranoia of women using weaponizing sexual harassment. Mm. Um, But within that episode – so there's that play and there's all that stuff – but within that episode, my actual favorite stuff in there is the Lola Mr. Lizer yeah. relationship, which I think really speaks to so much of what really happens that is very gray and weird and gaslighty mm-hmm. and people using their power to do something that's inappropriate and maybe like just weird gray areas. I mean, not gray, it's black and white. Mm -hmm. Like a teacher should never make a student feel like she has to do anything that she doesn't want to do or, or, and then gaslight her for feeling crazy about it. But but he makes her feel like it's gray maybe, or he, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's just a mess. That's this stuff is a mess. And so we just thought it was funny. And then like you go back and watch disclosure and it's very, it's so Mm nineties. Every piece of clothing is so blousey. Um, <laughs> Demi Moore is a great, she's great in the movie, but the character is so flawed and it's so like through the white, ma- it's th- so through the male gaze, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so that was sort of, it just came together. It's one of my favorite episodes. And then the other side of that episode is Queer Eye. Yeah. It's like the, we got the Queer Eye guys to to Queer Eye make over Coach Steve. Yeah. Coach Steve, I think this season really uh, hits, a, hits a new level. I think he's my he's my new favorite character mm. on the show. Mm. Um, he's in, sorry, I'm drinking yeah, his coffee yeah. while we do this. But um, yeah, we, he, he'd gotten fired in season two. So he now sort of pops up in these weird moments mm-hmm. and clips throughout episodes. And, you know, he's a very fun kind of garnish to moments yeah i think his his riff on uh, uber driving uh, made me laugh harder than anything in, oh, in a while oh good good so good over the over the credits of one good episode. good good yeah that was um, just me in a booth venting a bit on <laughs> my experiences with uber drivers um do you you voice so many characters on this show do you is there one that you've kind of gravitated towards or one that you enjoy doing more than others at, at this point or no i really love i you know i i always had the same answer for kroll show it's 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 kind of the same it's really whatever character I'm doing at the time. I mean, the most, you know, Nick, the character of Nick, which is me, is is slightly the most challenging because he's, he's, you know, he's, you know, like Coach Steve or Lola or the hormone monsters that I do. Like, they're, you kind of can immediately fall into what their point of view is or mm-hmm. what the jokes are that they do. Um, Nick is trickier because he's me and in some capacity. And so it's a little more nuanced. Um, and I think, you know, we're continuing to find new interesting things to, to deal with, with him, but he's, you know, him and Andrew and, and specifically him this season, Nick is sort of a, a driving force through the season. And so, so sometimes like being the lead of a thing is not the most fun because you're carrying story. Um, and you're a little more reactive to the funny characters, mm-hmm. like Coach Steve. Um, I'm really enjoying more the further we get into like a character like Lola, and the more you, that she becomes less of just like a. The more that I can like get into the like the underlying psychology of her and mm-hmm. and give her more to do, like in that Liza uh, the that that disclosure episode where yeah. you really see how a poor girl like Lola who's just like so happy to get the attention of a of a teacher and then 
gets caught up in something that she doesn't even quite understand and is quite innocent inside of it. Um, I think is really fun colors to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I, I kind of love them. They're all like my. It sounds so cheesy, but they're all my babies. <laughs> yeah. I love them all equally and for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so you tweeted out a a review of the show, and this and I read it, and this quote really caught my eye. This is from the Vogue review mm. by Emma Spector. Uh, quote, it's refreshing to see a show made by adults tackle the complex question of sexual fluidity with humor that isn't derived from a hacky, cynical angle of aren't these kids aren't these kids crazy with their non-binary pronouns? Uh-huh. Um, and it reminded me of and maybe this just because I just saw Joker last night uh-huh. of this Todd Phillips uh-huh. controversy. Uh-huh. Which I don't know, have you followed that at all? Where she, he, you know, light, bit, lightly. Yeah. So he basically said he used to make comedies like The Hangover yeah. and he stopped doing that because he thought it was like impossible to be funny now that in right. this woke culture. Right. And your show, Big Mouth, feels like it's like the perfect example of why that's not true mm. because you are able to be really funny in this and deal with these issues. And, and I think that review speaks to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just curious if you if you think about that or what your kind of reaction is to that that idea you know it's I, I will preface it by saying like you know I mean here we are on a podcast talking about comedy like sh- like so I'm like part of me is just like I don't I'm like so like I don't know about weighing in on any of this mm-hmm. like I just kind of want like what I will say is like I, I think that you can still talk about anything and be crazy and not feel too censored and like it is a it is a more it's a trickier time but also like um you know it's like we have i don't know we have a show where like a boy sends a dick pic to his cousin that he made out with like Mm -hmm. You can still do and say some pretty crazy, wild shit. Yeah, you know, um, but everybody a- approaches comedy differently and has different objectives and opinions inside of it. And you know, and we don't always get it exactly right. And like, there are people who are not always thrilled with how we're uh, a, a, a speaking about an issue. And and I'm I'm of the opinion. Personally, I can't speak for anyone else, however they want to do comedy or whatever they want to say. I'm like, you know, we have this ability to listen and communicate with the audience and hear what they have to say. And and like and sometimes I'm like, I don't agree with you. And other times I'm like, all right. Yeah, I hear you. Like, Mm -hmm. we didn't get that exactly right. Like, we'll we'll do better. I'll try to do Mm -hmm. better. And I think like. I'm personally interested in like, um, like I went to the Galapagos last year, mm-hmm. and and like the Galapagos is this amazing place where you see all these animals that have evolved separately inside of their own islands, right? That's mm-hmm. the basic idea of it, and it's this incredible uh, um, uh, example uh, examples of of how creatures evolved and adapt in their own spaces. And you can watch them because they all have their own islands. Um, and I was struck by just the, the creatures that survive are the ones that adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like a iguana that can figure out how to grow a tail back after a bird bites its tail off, like that's the iguana, their progeny are the ones that live on. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, uh, you know, I'm here to evolve and adapt. Um, and, uh, and, you know, everybody, everybody goes and makes their own art and however they want to do <laughs> yeah. it, God bless them. And if they stop making it cause it's not the way they want to do it anymore, you know, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And if they want to change or they want to complain and that's what their art is, then, you know, go, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, is there an example of something from the first uh, couple seasons maybe that you got feedback on in Big Mouth that you said, oh, maybe that was, that was the wrong way to approach that? Yeah. Like, you know, season one, uh, I think we had a thing totally gay. It's a song and, and in it we had Freddie Mercury and we, you know, Freddie Mercury says he was gay and, and, um, and we got feedback from the audience that a lot of people were like, Freddie Mercury was actually considered himself or was, was really more bisexual Mm -hmm. and like, we then in I don't know if it was I think it's season two we were like okay we correct ourselves mm-hmm. and we're like Freddie Mercury was considered himself or was considered bisexual. Um, we are currently there are um, 
the things happening in this season that people are like, you didn't, you have not classified this how we want to classify this. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I, I'm listening to what you have to say and, mm. and we will try to do better. And like, and that, and the, you know, to have a show that is talking about so much of this stuff. And I think so much of it is super important to people about their sexual identity and, and gender identity and all these things. Like, I, I, we're not going to always get it right, you know, and like, and, and, and all I can say to the people who feel like, like either hurt or not seen that like, you know, we're, we are reading what you're saying and we are aspiring to, to get it right and have people feel like they're being represented. And, um, and that's like kind of all we can do. And, and, I mean, it's this amazing, as we started talking about the episode about like the feedback that is now readily available to us as creators um, and the audience can weigh in and say like, we love this. We don't like this. This doesn't feel right. This feels like you, you understand me. This doesn't feel like you're seeing me at all. And, and then it's our, either our, it's our, uh, you know, we're in a position where we can either be like, okay, like either get angry or get defensive or listen and read and, and try to like going forward, like be better at it, you mm -hmm. know, but also be like, be like, we're trying to in, be inclusive and trying to tell different kinds of stories. And that's like, you know, all we can, any of us can do is just like try. Yeah, absolutely. And you have uh, Ali Wong as a pansexual uh, character in this uh, season, right. which is which is exciting. Allie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, um, I play soccer, I'm a Ravenclaw, and not to make all you normies shit your Old Navy undies, but I am pansexual. Holy oh, shit! shit. Jinx! Robert Durst! Killed them all, of course. Okay, Aiden says she got kicked out of their school because she made out with a nun. Uh, hi, Nick Birch, Gryffindor. The pansexual thing sounds intriguing. Could you speak to that some more? I'm not sure I'm ready to unravel all of this in my classroom. Pansexual means I'm into boys, girls, and everyone in between. I thought that was bisexual. No, bisexuality is so binary. <laughs> it's pronounced bonary. Uh, not so sure about that. You know, that. like when I see those ads for real estate couples on benches, it makes me real bonery in my pants. Ugh, no. Being pansexual means my sexual preference isn't limited by gender identity. And gender is like male or female, right? And it's a choice? No? Uh, how do people talk these days? Oh my god. Okay. It's like, some of you borings like tacos, and some of you like burritos. And if you're bisexual, you like tacos and burritos. Oh my god, I'm fucking hungry now. But I'm saying I like tacos and burritos, and I could be into a taco that was born a burrito, sure, okay, or a burrito that's transitioning into a taco, comprende? Okay. And honey, anything else on the fucking menu? I was really just looking for a quick curse-free intro here. There's people who I think on uh, on social media have been like, you're your definitions of pansexual and bisexual are not how we see it. Mm -hmm. And, and you're, and, and, you know, there's a couple things within that. I'm like, well, it's a, it's a 13 year old girl who's like claiming her identity, mm -hmm. but like a lot of 13 year olds and like a lot of people on our show, they're saying whatever, it's not the truth, yeah. but it's just like, it's someone who's trying to figure out their identity and posturing as they know what's what, mm -hmm. but people who are watching the show feeling like we're not representing what bisexuality is or pansexuality is to them uh i'm like all right maybe we didn't maybe we didn't get it exactly right and i i will like we we are reading and and listening to you and like and hoping to to you know get it right but also being like we are trying to talk about these things and we're not going to always get it right. And and also that our characters are kids who aren't authorities on anything. They're, they're similarly trying to figure it out. And sometimes they are not – we're not saying like they are defining what these things are. They're just trying to understand it themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean and that's what's so great about knowing that you have three – at least three more seasons to, to deal with this stuff because you can kind of have the confidence to – to know that you have the the real estate moving forward. I hope so. I our, our our goal is really like my goal is to like 
really um, continue to talk about all these different kinds of stories and and make people feel like their what their story is being seen, and it's going to take time to tell all these different stories and let these characters evolve, and also. You know, when we don't get it exactly, when we don't get it right, that we'll like try to figure out how to get it right over time. You know. Mm, yeah. Um, so you also announced that you have a, a big mouth spinoff happening, right? Uh, Human resources is that correct? Is that uh, what, what can you share about about that news? So you know, we on Big Mouth at the end of season two, the the kids go up into the world of the monsters, the, the department of puberty, which is all in the sort of this world of human resources. And the more we thought about it, the more we realized how rich that world would be. So it's a show that is a workplace comedy set in the world of the monsters. Um, so, uh, you know, the hormone monsters, but also the shame wizards, the depression kitties, the DNA apes, all of the elements and characters and emotions and uh, the things that sort of manage who we are as people. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas Big Mouth really is focused on kids going through puberty and adolescence, this show really will allow us to go off and tell other stories in people's uh, the, uh, the broader landscape of a life lived of birth and death and um, divorce, marriage, uh, you know, um, and everything in between. Um, and so we're going to, you know, uh, you know, write this next season of, you know, where it's a it's a long process. Mm -hmm. It'll take a while for us yeah. to actually put the show out because we obviously have a lot more work to do on Big Mouth, but we're we're starting the process of moving forward and, and um I, I'm really excited about it. I think it has like the potential to have like quite big broad strokes and micro big macro and micro stories to tell, but it really is takes it's a it's a workplace comedy show mm -hmm. in the vein of the office or all the other shows that sort of are workplace comedies about these hormone monsters, but then we'll be going down into the world of and to to tell all these other kinds of human stories. Mm -hmm. Cool. Coming up, Nick talks about getting back out on the road for his biggest stand-up tour ever. Uh, so you have also been out on a stand-up tour, yeah. uh, the middle-aged boy tour. Mm -hmm. um, so how's that been been going? Uh, is it, this is sort of the, one of the bigger stand-up tours that you've done in a while, right? I think it's yeah. I think it's kind of the biggest, most kind of concerted effort of a tour I've done ever. I think like you know I put out a special like almost ten years ago, nine or ten years ago called "Thank You Very Cool," and it was stand-up and. There's a lot really, of characters, though, right? And a lot of characters, yeah. and it really became sort of a backdoor pilot for Kroll Show. Mm -hmm. And then I've done stand-up over the years, but mainly, like, in L.A. when I'm around. And I've done a, some smaller tours or, you know, dates around the country, you know, on my own to promote Kroll Show or with the Oddball tour a few years ago. But this is the most, like, I'm going out on the road and I'm doing this hour and I'm, you know, really kind of um, working on it. It's been really fun. And it's been – I'm trying to take some of the lessons I've learned from Big Mouth, which is, you know, I feel like – When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Audiences with Big Mouth have really uh, been drawn to the fact that it's very, a lot of comedy, but that there's a lot of um, 
uh, heartwarming, but really like I'm I've been much more vulnerable in Big Mouth, and I'm trying to take that uh, across to my stand up and being a little more personal and a little more revelatory about my life and where I am. And I mean, the name of the tour being Middle Aged Boy is sort of speaks to this feeling of like, here I am, I'm 41 years old. Um, but there's still a lot of elements of my life that, you know, I'm very much an adult, but there are still elements of my life that are kind of boyish. And I think um, I, I I was interested in exploring that and the material kind of lives in that space. And as I mean, it's silly and crazy and goofy, like the like what I find funny, but also kind of opening myself up and talking a little bit more personally about who I am and the things that are going on in my life that um, I I want to be um, I want to be a little more honest and vulnerable with audiences and and you know it seems like people have liked that element of it that it's a little more you know digging digging in a little more. Why are we so mean to our moms? Like why are we so and everyone's like I'm not mean to my mom? Okay, have you ever been with a friend and they get a phone call and they're like. the fifth time I gotta take it you know <laughs> hello yes yeah correct <laughs> I don't know you could just text me this <sighs> I don't care that you want to hear my voice goodbye <laughs> they were on the phone with their mother okay because we have no shorter fuse with anyone in our lives than we do with our mothers. I could be on the, like, I could, I could meet David Duke. Like, you know, like, the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and be more patient with him than I would my own mother. I'd be like, oh, uh-huh. And you don't wear the hoods anymore. You're just... And you're a nonprofit. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> Meanwhile, my mom could be like, I clipped an article for you about the LA Art Deco movement. And I'd be like, why would you do that, Mom? <laughs> you know Art Deco is my least favorite architectural movement. But it does seem like it is, yeah, more personal and that it, it there's a contrast from the stand-up that you started out doing, which was more doing characters. Yeah. Um, so how did how did you first start doing stand-up and did, when was that really the focus is is developing these characters at the beginning or what was what were sort of the earliest? Uh... I mean, my early, early, early days in New York, you know, I started doing improv in college and I went to New York and we started like I was doing kind of anything and everything. So it was like I was doing improv classes at UCB. I was in a practice group. I was improvising with my friends from Georgetown in a group. But then I was doing open mics and doing stand-up. And then I started doing, you know, all these different kinds of weird shows in New York, all spaces. And sometimes that was I was doing characters and then I was I joined a sketch group and I then got sick of doing sketch. So I started taking those characters and putting them live presentationally on stage and then got really into that and then. Still was sort of doing stand-up along the way, but it was usually sort of dependent on the character stuff. Um, and I think it was because it was safer in some way to be like, well, I'm going to do this character. Like, I know this character's point of view, or I can hide behind it mm -hmm. and be like an old Upper West Side guy, like, you know, oh, hello. Or I can be like a craft services coordinator, like Fabrice Fabrice, or I can be like a Jersey Shore like douchebag, like Bobby Bottle Service or blah, 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 you know, all those kinds mm -hmm. of things. And, and which was great. And it's, I love doing characters. I, f I love playing, doing different voices. And I love all that stuff. <clears throat> and, but as I've gotten older, I feel like, you know, I've seen, I just feel like people are drawn to, when they're watching stand up, they want to see someone's point of view on something. Mm -hmm. And, I still fill the act with the character voices and act outs and things that I think 
but it's usually in service of telling this story about myself and um and I'm you know it's it's like just the challenge for me of trying to continuing to evolve and if I'm going to go do stand up and I'm going to have a point of view on things like I want it to be authentic to who I am and where I am in my life. Mm-hmm. What's the uh, what's sort of the origin story of the Oh Hello characters that that you and John Mulaney developed? Because now it, they've they've gone through so much, including the Broadway run yeah. recently. How did what? Where was sort of the first time that you that you did that? Well, we saw these guys. You know, John and I were always fascinated with this sort of got these kind of Upper West Side characters, both from living in New York and you know wa- growing up watching like Woody Allen and that kind of style of movies and. You know Elliot Gould and uh, and and that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. We were in New York and there were these two older guys walking through the Strand bookstore and they were both buying their copies of Alan Alda's biography, no, autobiography, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed. <laughs> and we just followed them around and watched them read their book at a coffee shop. And so we then, I had just, I was doing a a show with Jesse Klein at this place called Rafifi, which is now closed in New York, but was like a real hub for alt comedy in their early mid two thousands. And, um, um, so Jesse was got a job, moved to LA. And so John took over as my co-host and we decided to host these shows as these two guys. And so we would just host the shows every week and interview our friends and eat, drink tuna teenies and do be idiots. And, and, we just loved doing them, and we would just have fun making fun of our friends and, and coming up with bits every week. And then when I moved to L.A. and eventually got that – actually got the Thank You Very Cool special, we thought it would be fun to do the characters on that. We did that on the special. And then when I got Kroll Show, um, it felt like, well, let's have these guys be a part of Kroll Show. And we shot all different kinds of things, some of them more filmic, like like a, like a kind of like feeling looking like a Woody Allen-ish movie. And then also like a silly cable access prank show called Too Much Tuna where we prank people Too Much Tuna. And that was very fun and people seemed to really like that. And that's when we had like 15-year-old girls in Phoenix dressing up as these characters (laughs) for Halloween. And we were all of a sudden like, oh, this is – because we were always told like, well, this is very niche. Only like industry and New York people will get this and like this. And then once we saw all these other kinds of people – getting into it we were like oh this is something and when i finished i the league was finished or i maybe had one more season of the league but i finished kroll show i put it to bed and john had had just like uh Mulaney had just finished and we were both like what do we want to do and we we're like well let's maybe these guys i think live play would be such a great thing and we wrote it very hastily in la workshopped it a little brought it to the cherry lane theater in new york a small off-Broadway theater and then had so much fun doing the run and then toured it and then brought it back to Broadway. And, you know, I was just talking to John this past weekend and we were reminiscing about it and, like, just thinking it was so fun. You know, doing stuff on your own is very gratifying and pleasing. Like, doing the stand-up tour is really Mm -hmm. fun. and But, like, doing something like that with, you know – someone who you're so close to and who's been my dear, dear, dear friend for so long to then go off and have this experience together mm-hmm. is is incredibly gratifying. Do these do these characters uh feel like they'll they'll stay with you um, you know, throughout your career? Do you feel like there's more to be done with them or how do you I mean our, how do you think about that? Our take is you know, John and I both said, and we genuinely mean it, it's that I hope we'll be doing these characters until we're the age of the yeah. guys themselves. So <laughs> that would be great. You know, it's the most fun. It's the most fun. Uh, it's the most fun. And, and again, to do it with a guy who I've you know known since college, um, who's so deeply funny and, and smart, um, is like is really like. Incredible gift. Mm-hmm. You you cast him in, in in your improv group or what's I the... yeah when I was a senior I cast John and also Jacqueline Novak oh, who's yeah. got an amazing yeah. show right now up in New York called Get on Your yeah, Knees. Yeah, unbelievable. I saw her work it out here in L.A. before oh, cool. she went there and it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a great show. So um, to the think that like you know and and I was in the group and Berbiglia Mike Berbiglia invited me to audition for a sketch show and then 
joined the improv group and he and Ed Harrow and Brian Donovan, who are, are now writers in LA on, on a bunch of different shows. And, um, Alison Becker, who's an amazing actress and, and writer and comedian here in LA. And, um, all these people that I came up with, um, and John and Jacqueline, who were freshmen when I was a senior, and I knew b- immediately that both of them were these incredibly special voices. So to see now, however many years, like, you know, 15 years later, to see how incredibly funny and smart uh, they are is like a, such a, you know, I, I'm just like, I'm like, I can't believe I got to work with these <laughs> folks when they were kids and and to see now the world see how incredibly talented they are is is cool coming up nick tells the story of auditioning for snl with john mulaney jordan peele and ellie kemper only one of them made the cut yeah uh so we we talked about kroll show a little bit but i wanted to ask sort of that that came up not long after you had auditioned for snl is that right so you auditioned with John Mulaney and, or at the same time as John Mulaney and Jordan Peele. Yeah, um, which is just kind of insane because you, I mean, all three of you are, are unbelievable and have gone on to such great things, all on Big Mouth. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was how, writing yeah. the wrongs of. Uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> how do you how do you feel about that uh, that experience now? Is it is it made you? Um, I don't know, think about the the show in any different way, SNL, just the experience of, of auditioning and then having them reject you and Jordan Peele. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I so growing up, SNL was so important to me. Um, and it still holds this weird power yeah. over all of us. Like whether you watch the show or not, you're kind of always aware of who's being cast. Mm-hmm. And um, it just, it does loom very large. And, I think when I when I auditioned, I had been I had done Cavemen, and I kind of knew everything was going to be okay. Like, you know, when you're young, and at that moment in time, it was a different moment in comedy when there weren't that many avenues to go do stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like if I don't get SNL, my career might not happen. Yeah. Um, I knew if I didn't get SNL that things were going to be okay, that I was going to work, but I really more than anything ever in my comedy life, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And John and I were pitching a movie in L.A. Uh, before that, we both got a call being like, "They're, uh, you know, we want to audition you guys for SNL. And we, like, worked on our auditions together. And, and I, at that point, was like, well, I want to be on it. I don't think I want to be a writer. Um, and John had written already a bunch and is such an incredibly talented writer and got cast as a writer Mm -hmm. got hired as a writer on the show and jordan was in that audition ellie kemper was in that audition uh a bunch of there are a bunch of people on that audition who have gone on to have very yeah good careers um obviously jordan like went and made keen so it was then if i then got cast on the league a year or two later and then made Kroll Show a few years after that. So, like, it took me a little while to get to doing Kroll Show, but mm-hmm. um, but it... And and Jordan and Keegan did Key and Peele, a similar time frame that I did Kroll Show, and it was very funny for us to both be like, wow, we've... You know, and there's something about SNL that I'll, I'll always wish I got on that show. Mm-hmm. Like, it'll just... Logically or illogically, it doesn't matter. It's just, like, it's just that... It's just got that hold. Um... Even when I then got to go make my own sketch show on my terms, doing the characters I wanted to do without anyone else telling me what I could or couldn't do um, in an environment that was entirely in my control, there was still that thing of being like, oh, but Saturday Night Live, you know. <laughs> um, but it all it's all worked out. Yeah. It's well, all worked uh, out just fine. If you, you Would you want to host if, uh, if that opportunity I came up? I would love to. I would love to host that show. Yeah. John's it's done it a couple times now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. John, and he's done an amazing job. He's so, he's, he's so perfect for that show and understands that show on all levels, having written there for so long. And, and I think, um, you know, so, but yeah, it would be, it's like, I don't if you asked any person in comedy right now, like, would you if given the opportunity, would you go host Saturday Night Live? Like they would be lying if they said they didn't want to yeah. do it. Because yeah. it's just it's it was such an important show to me. Mm-hmm. It's like and 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 
and I, you know, and I know so many people who are there now and the people who've come through that system and it's a, you know, there's a lot of very, very funny, talented people there. Yeah. You've also worked a lot with Jenny Slate who was there and I'm not, I'm not sure she had the, the best experience there, but. No, I think then that, that I know plenty of people who've been on that show who it didn't work out for in one way or another and have gone on to have great careers and other people who literally made their career starting there and have gone on to do other things. And I, I, I don't, you know, it's not to be a cast member or writer there. It's not for everyone, for mm-hmm. sure. You know, yeah. um, from the outside, at least, it seemed like Kroll Show was just such a great um, gave you kind of ultimate freedom in terms of what you were able to do. Mm-hmm. Did it feel that way while you were while you were doing it? It did. I mean, it was such a. Um, I got to make a crazy show uh, with all my friends, and Comedy Central was incredibly. Um, uh, open to us making the kind of show we wanted to make because we didn't even want to make a typical sketch show. We wanted to make this hybrid, multi-narrative, multi-character show that kind of built off of itself and uh, ate, ate its own tail and evolved and changed and broke form and and also like was really dependent on playing into other forms and genres of reality shows and all their kinds of things. So um, it was incredible. And it was all the characters that I had been developing with some of them with like John Daly and, um, and Jenny Slate and being able to bring in like Jason Manzukis to do bits or John mm-hmm. Mulaney to do Oh Hello and, and then interview them inside the show. And then, you know, John Levenstein, who ran that show, is, is such a special comedy brain and bringing all the stuff that he wanted to do and try out and things. It was really an opportunity to do the things a lot of us knew we wouldn't be able to do elsewhere mm-hmm. and um, and and put it together. And, and John Kreisel, who directed it, who had done Tim and Eric and has gone on to do Baskets and, um, and Portlandia, Portlandia and, yeah. you know, and and and. Um, uh, all these different kinds of shows, like it really was this opportunity. It was like a real, like, well, let's try it and see what it mm-hmm. is, and let's take weird chances and do really weird meta inside stuff, and 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 also and like or doing stuff with like Chelsea and really being able to be like, I love, have always loved Chelsea, and be able to work with her and give her the freedom to 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 be as crazy and funny and sharp as she wants to be and 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 give you know let her let us play in that space together yeah i mean i think a lot of people myself included were surprised when you decided to end it after three seasons Mm. was there sort of a an overarching reason why you why you decided to to end it there was a couple reasons um you know because we had built this sort of meta cross-breeded world where characters and storylines started to meld and, you know, different worlds started to enmesh. It was sort of like, sounds, it was not exactly like a Herald, but a long-form improv where you have these different scenes and that hopefully by the, and there's like three acts to it. And by Mm -hmm. the third act, you hope that all of these stories have combined into one cohesive story. It wasn't exactly that, but by the third season, all of these worlds started to enmesh and come together. Um, And I felt like we had really explored a lot of those characters and storylines to their natural conclusion. Um, And I was also just exhausted because I had basically been doing the league – going from the league to Kroll show and back and then inside of that making a couple of movies and going on tours. And I just was – physically exhausted and mentally a little drained and I was like I feel like we've told the stories we want to tell and I think we can put this to bed and I also wanted to open up my brain uh to and physical time to start over and think about new things and when I put Kroll show to bed and and took a back seat on the end of the league and it opened up to what has become that oh that run of uh what became the oh hello on broadway and big mouth um which have been incredibly gratifying uh on a lot of levels and i don't think i could have done either of those 
things had I continued on making more seasons of Kroll Show. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what I want to do now before we wrap up is kind of go through uh, a few other of your credits that we didn't get a chance to talk about and just see if there's a, a story or, or memory mm. that kind of jumps out. Mm. Um, I saw that one of your, your earliest writing gigs was on Chappelle's show. Mm-hmm. What do you remember from from that? Well, it was me and my Georgetown buddies, all the improv guys from there, uh, Ed and and Berbiglia and our my friend Conrad Mulcahy is no longer in comedy and, and Brian Donovan. Uh, I was friends with Neil Brennan, and mm-hmm. he was like, if you have sketch ideas, let us know. And we pitched him a bunch of ideas. And the sketch that we sold them ultimately was the white family whose last name is spelled N-I-G-G-A-R, <laughs> uh, which they then turned into like a kind of leave it to beaver. Mm-hmm. Um, and we pitched them other stuff, but that was the one thing they really <clears throat> bought. It was an amazing thing to early on, especially when Chappelle show was so – so important that we had any version of a credit there was, mm-hmm. you know, was awesome. Morning, niggas! Why, it's Christian, our colored milk man. And it's my favorite family to deliver milk to. The niggas! Mm-hmm. Something sure smells good. You niggas cooking? We sure are. There's some leftover bacon if you'd like some. Ooh, none for me. I know better than to get between a nigga and their pork. Might get my fingers bit. <laughs> Here you go. I, I hate to bother you about this, but, uh, well, you didn't pay your bill last week. And I know how forgetful you niggas are when it comes to paying bills. Golly, Clifton, it slipped my mind. Here you go. Sorry about that. Oh, nigga, please. Nigga, please. Few years later, uh, you took your character El Chupacabra to Reno 911. Yeah, um, was that a big uh, kind of uh, opportunity at the time? Yeah, it was so exciting. I mean, I had watched Reno 911, especially like as a guy just getting started in comedy. I was such a nerd for the state, and you know Tom Lennon and Ben Gran and <clears throat> all of the folks on and Carrie and all the and then all the people they brought into that show. Uh, I love that show, and that was a big deal to like get on that show and be able to improvise and play with them and feel like I could keep up <clears throat> was so exciting. And um, the idea that like those guys who I had watched when I mean they were young, but I was like in high school and college that they were like, "Hey, come come mess around with us," was like was incredibly exciting. Hmm. Was there a first uh, movie role that you felt like you really got to be funny in a movie? Um. I mean, the early movies I was in, I was in I Love You, Man, a little scene with a couple little scenes uh, with me and Aziz and, and Rudd, and that was really cool. Um, date Night, I have a brief scene where I'm the, like, asshole mater D for Steve Carell and Tina Fey, and um, I got to kind of improvise and add a couple things in there, and that was really exciting because I was just looking at, like, at that moment, Liz Lemon and and <laughs> Michael Scott. Yeah. I mean, I was they are so much more yeah. than that, but yeah. it was like I was had to got to play with those two. It was really cool. Um and uh get him to the Greek then with with uh with Jonah and, and Russell Brand and 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 Diddy and getting to improvise in that sort of world was so cool. You know, it was like all these little one scene in a movie, but feeling like you know, I was like, I had fulfilled my dream. I was like in a big studio comedy and got to mess around and it was really fun. Um, you were on uh, Parks and Rec a bunch with um, with Matt Besser. Yes. As a, as a duo. Crazy Ira and the douche. Hey, hey, Liz, before we go, can you just uh, do our tag? The only douche I let clean my douche is the douche. How do I do it? You say, the only douche that I let clean my douche is, is the, the douche. douche. I don't, I don't know if I want to. Well, then it's into the spank chair. Spank chair. Spank chair. Spank chair. Spank chair. Spank chair. The only douche that I let use my is my is your is the douche. Almost. Beyonce didn't have a problem with that one. 
So uh, was that was that fun to get to to work with him? Uh, one of yeah, the UCB I mean, founders. All those UCB folks, like you know, were that the reason I really fell in love with comedy was taking classes at UCB and doing workshops when I was still in college, and being able to play with 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 him was was super cool. And um, it's so funny now. Parks and Rec is now like on Netflix and mm-hmm. all those shows that we all loved and we're so excited to be a part of when we were when they were on but not everybody in the country saw them but now that they're on Netflix and Hulu or wherever they're streaming people like all new generations of kids are watching it and and are digging it it's and it's funny to all of a sudden be like oh my god you're the douche I was like I was you know I was yeah. on that show like <laughs> 7 years ago but I'm thank I'm psyched you're watching it now yeah um, we didn't get to talk much about the league, uh, but that's a, a show that I love, and I know so many people do. Um, is there a story, or, or when you think about your time, you know, you spent a long time on that show. Yeah. Is there is there something that that stands out, or or just a memory? Oh man, I mean, it's there's so many. It's like you know, I got to spend seven seasons with that that crew of people, and it was such a funny group of people. And you know, some of us were from the same world. Some of us, like me and. Uh, Paul Shear and Manzukis all came out of the improv world, but everybody else was from different spaces. And, you know, we all came together on that show and became really good friends. And um, uh, we just all got together in, in Austin, and it was so fun being back together with everyone. Um, I'm trying to think, I don't know, there's so many stories, honestly. <laughs> like, you know, obviously the stuff with Manzukis and I is Rafi stands out as so fun there's a there's an outtake of him realizing that um Whitney Houston is dead and then that Michael Jackson's dead and and I you watch me not at a, truly not being able to keep a straight face and I like have to leave the room for him to do his side of the coverage <laughs> All right, well, I brought you here for a reason. It's scrote season. Oh, man, you guys do such fun stuff together. I want to hang out and, like, hit each other in the dick and stuff. Well, it's not going to happen. I'm trying to protect my balls, okay? I'm hoping that you can help me. Yes, I will be your ballsy guard. From now on, I'm Kevin Costner. Your balls are Whitney Houston. R.I.P. R.I.P. Whitney Houston? Yeah. Oh, my God! Whitney's dead? Yeah. Oh! How's Michael Jackson taking it? Oh, buddy. But, yeah, that's... Yeah, I mean, it's it was like four months every year. It was like we got to go to camp. Mm-hmm. It was like going to camp every year with the same group of people. You're like, oh, we have four years of this four four months every year that I get to spend with this this lovely group of people who yeah. I love. And it was almost- and oh, other I mean, the other thing I will say is the fun little fact is on Big Mouth, um, Jay's brothers are Sheer and Mark Duplass. Yeah, yeah. So it's we're always doing these kind of like mini league reunions inside of the inside of Big Mouth. Yeah, I love that. Um, and then the last one that I wanted to touch on uh, is a movie that I got to see at South by Southwest this year, mm. Olympic Dreams, yeah. which I thought was really incredible Thank movie you. Um, and just really special. Uh, so what what can you kind of share about, about that experience? Um, it's this movie, Olympic Dreams, that I made with this filmmaker couple, Alexi Pappas and Jeremy Teicher. And Alexi's a summer Olympian. She's a, a long-distance runner. And the Olympic Committee gave them an artist-in-residence grant to go to the Winter Olympics to make something. And they brought me this idea for a movie, and I worked on it with them, and we built this script, um, very loosely, loose, improvised storyline that we then went inside of the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang in, in South Korea last year and shot a movie, just the three of us, with no crew, um... And the other actors, it's me and Alexi, and then the other actors are all real Olympic athletes, including Gus Kenworthy, who's now on American Horror Story, um, and a bunch of other really interesting athletes who, you know, lent us their time. And and we just got this inside look at the Olympics in a way that I don't know if anyone's ever really been able to – it doesn't feel – like you've ever quite seen the Olympics yeah, this it's, way, it's like fascinating movie. Yeah. It's pretty. It's usually pretty managed and polished. And here we are inside of the athletes' lounge and the med center and the dorms, and you really get a sense of because of how small the movie is of what it's like inside of the Olympics. And yet it's so grand because we're the backdrop is this huge world event. So 
I'm really excited for people to see it. I really, I find, I think the movie's really. Can people see it yet, or it'll be out? IFC is releasing it in the new year. IFC okay, bought cool. it, and it'll be out in the new year. Um, I don't know exactly the date, but it'll be in in, in I guess 2020, early in the year, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm really excited. The other thing I'll just drop because I'm I assume this is coming out soon is yeah, yeah. the Adams Family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I play Uncle Fester. Uh, in the Adams Family, an animated movie. Uh, I think that comes out October 11th, uh, and it's very fun. And it's got a great cast: Charlize Theron and Oscar Isaac, and Chloe Grace, Grace Moritz, and and Finn Wolfhard, and Snoop Dogg, and a bunch of other funny, talented people. It's it's like a you know I love doing the animated movies with kids and stuff. And I think this one's actually pretty funny and weird. It's much weirder mm-hmm. than your average like kids animated movie and this one even younger kids can watch than big mouth so oh yeah yes younger <laughs> kids can watch but i think it's one also that like a comedy adult parents mm. who want to go see it it's it's pretty funny and weird and dark yeah cool yeah um so then we end every episode by asking uh comedians what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard so you can think about it kind of like a, a recommendation uh for something uh, something you saw on, on TV or movie or uh, stand-up or, or really um, anything? Well, on my tour, I'm having different people open for me. Um, and the, the two openers that I've had recently, uh, Emmy Blotnick, who is a great writer. I got to know because John Mulaney and I, uh, when we hosted the Spirit Award, she was a writer for us both of those. Mm. And she's written for Colbert and ran the President Show. She's got a great album called Party Nights. She's super funny. And then I also recently had Langston Kerman open for me, mm-hmm. who's um, really funny stand-up and actor and writer. He writes on Southside. Um, he's currently on Bless This Mess on ABC, and has got a. Um, I think his his album's called Light Skin Feelings. Um, they're both stand-ups that I've been I've been traveling with and opening. They've been opening for me, and they're both super funny. So I would go check out their stuff, yeah. Emmy Blotnick and Langston Kerman. Check them out. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Nick Kroll. Uh, Big Mouth Season 3 is streaming now on Netflix. And look out for the spinoff show, Human Resources, which should hopefully be coming sometime next year. And if you want to see Nick on tour, you can find his stand-up dates and get tickets at nickkroll.com. If you enjoy this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It is produced by Jason Smith and Scott Porch for Starburns Audio and edited by Mackenzie Mazel. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find the show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. I think we know the rest of the story. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.